Hey everybody, thanks once again for listening to Thinking Biblically about things that matter. My name is Steve Ron. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church in Warsaw, and we are continuing our series on gender. Last week, we tried to get a handle on what the world around us means when they use the word gender. Um, what we, we talked about um, gender dysphoria. We tried to answer the question, what is gender theory? Um, and really, if we summarize last week's um, lesson, we could, we could say we are a, a place where the majority of people believe uh, really that your, your um, biology doesn't matter. Maybe not, maybe not a majority of people, but a, but a very vocal minority of people then believe that your biology doesn't matter. That even if you are a biological male, you have every right to be attracted to whoever you want to be attracted to. And more than that, you have every right to identify as whatever gender you want. And so last week, really what we did was we described gender confusion. It's obvious that the world around us is confused by the idea of gender. And so that was, that was sort of what we covered last week. The question today is, um, is how did we get here? What contributes to gender confusion? So I'm going to spend a little while thinking about that, like on a big societal level. We're going to kind of look at like the last few hundred years of history and, and kind of different elements, that different factors that brought us to where we are. But then also at the end, I want to talk for a couple minutes about what contributes to gender confusion on an individual level, especially what are, what are our children, our grandchildren, what are, what are young people right now facing when it comes to gender confusion? So we're going to talk about it like big society level, then on, a, on an individual level. But before we think about those things, I, I want to say this. Um, make sure we're clear on this, that, that, that the people around us need what people have always needed, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Um, I firmly believe we should have a good understanding of the confusion around us, but but not primarily in a uh, what a bunch of morons everybody else is kind of way. Rather, we should understand the world around us so that we can better understand how to respond wisely, joyfully, courageously, patiently with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that being said, Let's start today by looking at a few of the factors that contribute to gender confusion on a societal level. So a lot of this came from a book um, called Strange New World by Carl Truman, um, and a super helpful book. I strongly recommend it if you want to dig deeper um, into these issues. Um, so here's a few factors that contributed to gender confusion. Number one, Romanticism. Romanticism is a period of history in the 1700s inspired by a philosopher named Jean-Jacques Rousseau who made a huge deal out of his inner psychology, his inner thoughts, his inner feelings. Now, now um, focusing on what's happening inside of our heart, inside of our mind, that's not a new f- human phenomenon. I mean, King David did that. The Apostle Paul did that. St. Augustine did that. They, they all talked about what was going on inside of them, but they worked hard to subject their inner feelings to the Word of God. But, the, but when Romanticism came around, when Rousseau and his disciples came around, 
these romantics were artists and writers and poets who were famous for, as Carl Truman says, they were famous for granting an authority to feelings, to that inner psychological space that all human beings possess. And those feelings are first and foremost genuine, pristine, and true guides to who human beings are. It is only society with its petty rivalries, its competitiveness, and its artificial sophistication that twists, perverts, and distorts those feelings. So what Romanticism did was it gave authority to our inner thoughts and feelings, and it, and it painted the, the outside influences as if, and any outside influence, as if that's what's ruining us. It's the pettiness, it's the, it's the um, rivalries, um, it's, the, it's the stuff happening outside of us that's ruining us. The, 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 the best we can do is, is submit to, to truly submit to what's going on inside of us. So it gave, it gave authority into that, to, to that inner psychological space. To our feelings. So, so if you squint, I mean, you can you can trace a straight line from the way that these brilliant creatives made heroes of anyone who would express what was inside of them. And so you see that you can draw a straight line to to the to the the in 2022 the biological male who expresses himself as a female, no matter what the oppressive world around him thinks about it. So romanticism that's one factor we have to understand. This was a game changer historically. Number two, Marxism. Now, there is a lot we could say about Marxism, and we're going to keep we're going to keep our discussion of it very narrow, um, and keep it brief, and keep it primarily related um, to to our topic of gender confusion. See, Karl Marx saw everything through the lens of economic class. He saw everything as a struggle between those who had money versus those who did not. And this is also how he saw religion. To, to paraphrase um, Carl Truman, if, when, when, when Marx heard a pastor uh, preach against adultery or against drunkenness or against laziness at work, the, the Christian would see all of this as how we honor God and obey his word. But Karl Marx saw these sermons as, as serving the factory owners, keeping the factory owners rich, keeping those factory workers in line. Marx thought that religion and morality are simply what ensures that the rich stay rich and the poor continue to make up a stable, sober, obedient workforce. Marx taught that religion and morality, at their best, are simply an opium for the people. They're just a, a painkiller for the people. They just made them feel better about their impoverished lives by giving them false hope in eternity. But at worst, they were, they were used by the, the rich to keep the working class in line. You stay faithful, you stay sober, you stay hardworking, um, you just stay at your job because you're, you're, you're making us rich. That was the whole point in Marx's mind to religion and morality. Therefore, he said, if people were to tr be truly happy, 
they needed to abolish religion. So, so hardly anyone has actually read Marx today. Um, even people who would probably call themselves like socialists or something like that. Many of them haven't even read Karl Marx. Um, but just like the Romantics, like we, there's a there's a lot of brilliant creatives in the Romantic period that that greatly influenced the world around them, and their and and their their thoughts and their philosophies infiltrated um, the the thinking of the Western world for for generations to come. Same thing with Marx, his his um, his lies, these lies that. Religious people are naive and deluded, and that religious leaders are oppressive, and and that there is no consistent moral co- code to be found. Um, these lies that that Marx believed wholeheartedly, and they and and they filled all of his writings and all of his teaching. Those lies are everywhere. The lies that religious people are naive and deluded, and that religious leaders are oppressive, and that there is no consistent moral code to be found. Those lies are everywhere. And then, and then number three, we have Freudism. Freudism. So, so Sigmund Freud, there's a lot we could say about Sigmund Freud. He was, a, he was of course, this Aust- Austrian neurologist. And he was famous for founding what is now known as psychoanalysis. Um, again, there's a lot we could say about him, but we want to narrow it down and we want to focus in on Freud's pervasive view that sex is foundational to human happiness. That sexual desire is foundation, like, like, like having our sexual desires fulfilled is foundational to human happiness. So the idea of human happiness, um, this is generally, um, it's always been considered part of what it means to have a meaningful, well-lived life. Aristotle talked about it. Thomas Jefferson talked about it in the Declaration of Independence. Christians talk about it in terms of happiness is found in glorifying God. The Bible has a lot to say about the blessed person. That's a that's a that's a indefatigably happy person. That blessed to be blessed means to have just just great consistent happiness. So happiness is a is a is itself um, part of what it means to live a meaningful, well-lived life. That's not disputable. But for Freud, the fundamental form of human happiness was found in the pleasure derived from sex, which means that to Freud, humans are at their most basic level sexual beings. And that's their identity. Their identity is, is most fundamentally defined at, at the most basic level by their sexual desires. Um, it is impossible to overstate how pervasive this idea has become. This idea is everywhere. People, people everywhere have, have tied their identity, their who they are, what, their, what, what they deserve, what they want, what they need to be fulfilled, what they need to be truly human, they have tied that, their, their most basic identity, their most basic needs to 
their sexual desires. Um, and this is just everywhere. So what you do is if you take our first three factors here, if you pair Freudism with Romanticism and Karl Marx, what you have is that basically if you, if you believe that your inner thought life is your highest authority, like the Romantics did, and then if you believe that religion and moral constraints from outside yourself cannot be trusted, like Marx did, and then if you believe that sexual desire is the most fundamental definition of who we are, if you like Freud did, if you, if you take all those and you combine them, that's basically the typical 21st century person. So those are our first three um, factors that we have to consider. Then our fourth one is technological advances. Right? So not only do we have these three ph philosophies that have infiltrated our thinking, they've infiltrated our thinking through media, through the academy, um, through the arts. Uh, they, they have infiltrated our thinking. But now what we also have is we have technology, um, technology like contraception, abortion, internet pornography, realignment surgeries. Now because of these ingenious technological advances over the last several decades, now it is possible for mankind to follow their hearts. So, so not only do we, do we now see our inner feelings as our highest authority, now, now we can um, do something about it. We, we can now, because of contraception, because of abortion, because of internet pornography, we can now um, indulge in our sexual desires with far fewer consequences. Technology has made it much, much um, easier and much, um, much less painful to indulge in our deepest sexual desires. And then when you, when you also factor in realignment surgeries and, and things that we can we can have done to our body now not only can we fulfill our our, our sexual desires we can even um, we can even change our bodies to to match what we think our gender is not it's, it's, it's more than just sexual orientation and sexual desire it's 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 who we fundamentally think we are. So all of these technological advancements have made expressing ourselves, being true to ourselves, so much easier. And, and the other thing te technology has done is, is it's changed the way we find community. Because here's the thing that's, that's very interesting um, about all of us, and it's true about all of us, very interesting is that in our human nature, we absolutely want to be individualistic. We want to be true to ourselves, but we also want to fit in. We also want to find um, community. Uh, I, I think my, the, my, my favorite way you see this, just the most obvious, easiest way you, you see this, and it, um, is in the way that teenagers 
dress, like the fashion choices of teenagers. Because on one level, their fashion choices scream that they want to be individualistic. They, they want to stand out. They want to look very different from children, and they definitely don't want to look like their, like their parents, like the adults in their life. So they don't, they don't want to look old, and they don't want to look like children. They, they have a very unique look that they're going for. They want to stand out, and it looks different in every decade, but it, the, the principle holds. But, but have you also noticed how they all want to be unique together? <laughs> like, all teenagers, um, the, n- n- not only do they want to stand out, but it's very clear also from the way they dress that they want to fit in. Not only do they want to stand out, but they also want to fit in. This is human nature. We want to be ourselves. We also want to belong to a community. And so what technology has done, especially internet technology, it has drastically changed the way people find and belong to a community. Carl Truman points out that that if you would have been born in 1400s France, for example, if you'd have been born in France in 1424, you you most likely would have been born a peasant. So let's just say you're born a peasant in 1424 in France, you would have had very few options. Like your lifelong church, your lifelong job, your lifelong hometown would have been essentially chosen for you. You would have been a part of those communities just by being born into them. You you didn't really have the option to leave and to go do something else, to strike out on your own. This is not a thing that anybody even really could do. And most likely your spouse, you had very few options as to who your spouse would be. Pretty much all of this was decided for you. And there wasn't really any notion of being true to yourself. It was all about being true to your community, the community that God had providentially placed you in. So so your life was about, so in success and fulfillment and whatever other words we would want to use, were all about honor and duty and faithfulness. This is true really even in the early 20th century. People had far fewer options than they have today. You were sort of born into your community. But now we have almost limitless options. Now we can find ourselves and find our people wherever we want. The ideas of patriotism, church authority, family stability are so incredibly different than they were even 75 years ago. Because of technology, especially internet technology, you can now identify as all kinds of different things and easily find your tribe, your community, find a place to belong. So now, we still want to be true to our community, and we want to be well thought of in our community, but it's a community that we have chosen because it best aligns with our highest authority, which is ourselves, and what we internally feel to be true and good. Now, now, here's what we're not going to stop and talk about today. We're going to talk about it, I think, in a few weeks. But, but um, we're, we're not going to talk about what happens when those different communities collide, right? What happens when an LGBTQ 
plus group feels that they have been oppressed by a civic or religious authority? What, what happens when they feel attacked because a local bakery won't provide a cake for their wedding? Or how does all of this affect the future of freedom of speech or freedom of religion? We're going to try to talk about those things in a couple of weeks. But for our purposes today, we just want to show that here are the factors that contribute to gender confusion on a societal level. Here's the big picture. And we have to see it because it's important for us to see what world our children and our grandchildren and the high school and college students in our lives are native to. This is their native world. So what that brings us to is sort of this individual level, the 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 things that the the children and grandchildren, the the young people in our lives, the things that they're facing. So we're going from like this big societal level to talk about here's a few of the things um, that are um, hounding the young people um, in our lives. Um, so, uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on any of these, but I want to give you kind of like just a, a bullet list um, uh, I, I, to help us understand just the very real situation that, that, that children face. Okay, so let's just go through these, these, these now individual type factors. Number one, um, first thing that children sometimes face is is childhood onset dysphoria. Young children sometimes long to be the other sex, even from a very early age. They express themselves in what's called gender non-conforming ways. Um, boys will often kind of enjoy things that really are generally enjoyed only by girls and then vice versa. But boys will often be bullied and called sissies because of this. Girls will be called tomboys. So some children... Um, some children experience childhood onset dysphoria from a very young age. So that's the first bullet point. Now, the second bullet point is is I want to point. I want to talk about the way dysphoria is um, is treated. And I, I'm I'm quoting from an article from Joe Carter. If you'd like me to send you this article, um, just you can just email me. Uh, my email is pastorsteveron at gmail.com. That actually goes for any, if you have any questions or comments or you'd like to um, ch- check out some of the resources I've been using for this, um, pastorsteveron at gmail.com. Anyhow, Joe, Cor- Joe Carter has a has an um, article where he says, um, he's talking about the way dysphoria is che- treated. He says, unless an authority figure like a pediatrician or a teacher has clearly stated they agree that gender and sexual identity are immutable, we must assume that they'll teach our children that gender and sexuality sexuality are fluid and alterable. So he's, he's warning parents um, that, that the typical approach now is for the authorities in our children's life to, to teach that Gender and sexuality are fluid and alterable. So, so he says by simply by asking a simple question, you might be shocked to find the, the the gentle pediatrician who has cared for your family shares the unscientific views on gender affirming care that are promoted by the American Academy of Pediatrics. 
It is better to know before the physician has your child alone in the examining room and asks if he or she is moving fluidly between masculine and feminine presentations or desiring gender-related medical interventions, such as hormone therapy or top surgery. It's important for us to understand that, that the American Academy, um, Academy of Pediatrics is encouraging pediatricians to encourage um, children with gender dysphoria, even young children with gender dysphoria, um, to, to encourage them, to, to help them to understand that there are like transition um, options available to them. It's important for us to understand that, that some experts say that, that a child suffering from or experiencing childhood onset dysphoria, um, they should be encouraged to transition. Others encourage what is called watchful waiting. But, but we have to understand the pressure is on from the highest levels for doctors to encourage transition. Even though the dysphoria resolves itself in up to 90% of cases, if puberty is allowed to take its natural course, we have to understand sort of the way um, that that um, that sort of the trend in treating childhood onset dysphoria. We also have to understand number three that some children experience rapid onset dysphoria. So this is for kids who have gone through puberty. Sharon James says in her book, Gender Ideology, in recent years, a growing number of adolescents who have not previously demonstrated gender nonconformity have been experiencing a rapid onset gender dysphoria. So it kind of comes on to them quickly with, with no real prior notice. And because they're older... They're actually exposed to even more gender-affirming care than young children. And so our fourth bullet point goes right along with this one is, is we have to understand that, um, that we have to understand the power of peer contagion. Peer contagion. So, so Joe Carter, again, um, in his article, he, he says that peer contagion um, is the is 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 the primary cause for the rapid growth of transgenderism among children and among teens it's 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 almost wholly a result of pure contagion um it it um and so he says um consider for example the recent experience of a public school teacher who identifies himself as a male secular feminist and as an early adopter of wokeness and as a former teen who identified as transgender. So that's who this public school teacher is. Um, and this is a lengthy excerpt, but it highlights how tragic the problem of peer contagion has become in some public schools. So, so by peer contagion, we simply mean uh, a process of mutual influence between a child or adolescent and his or her peers that includes behaviors and emotions that potentially undermine one's own development or cause harm to others. And so there's a very real way in which um, children can catch gender dysphoria from each other. Adolescents can, can, can it, is, it is in a way contagious because, because of influence 
um, through behaviors and emotions. So here's this, here's this um, public school teacher. He identifies himself as a male secular feminist, an early adopter of wokeness, and he was a former teen who identified as transgender. So this is him. Here's what he has to say about this, the school where he works. He says, here are some solid figures. I had six classes last year, and I didn't have a single one without multiple students who identified as transgender. Some classes had more than others, but the absolute lowest number was two in a 26-person class. Most of these students were just non-binary, but I had at least five in the midst of actual medical transition, along with quite a few more who spent their days planning how to get the process started. I'd estimate that 70% or so of these students are female and talk about breast binding and top surgery are common conversation topics at lunchtime. It's hard to not step in when you hear an obviously depressed, dysfunctional teenage girl working out how she can convince her parents to approve a double mastectomy. But what can you do? If I said anything at all, I'd be fired in a heartbeat. These children's identities, as you might expect, are wildly unstable. I can count a total of 19 pronoun changes requested by 12 students over just the last semester, along with six for changing names. It's, it's relatively common for students to transition, detransition, and transition again, especially in response to the identity shifts in their classmates. At one point, a single student's decision to go with they-them pronouns sets off a chain reaction that resulted in four more of her friends doing the same. It's gotten so ridiculous that a neighboring teacher recommended weekly pronoun checks just to avoid the outrage that inevitably comes from misgendering. Nowadays, gay and lesbian teenagers mainly live their lives as, well, gay and lesbian teenagers. It's the socially awkward heterosexuals who flock around them, desperate for a marginalized identity of their own that you need to be worrying about. In other words, it used to be that childhood transition was a way for gay kids to make themselves straight, but now it's primarily a way for straight kids to make themselves gay. And why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they? In these internet-poisoned youth subcultures, being a boring straight kid, especially a boring straight girl, puts you at the absolute bottom of the hierarchy, a totally acceptable target for barely concealed contempt and passive bullying. I had a group of queer students who ate lunch by my desk every day, and every other joke they made was about the one token heterosexual who liked to hang out with them. Of course, she was non-binary too by the end of the year. You can only take peers punching up at you for so long before you'd want to join them on their level. Our, our children are facing, via the internet, via social media, and with their, with their flesh and blood friends, um, our children, our grandchildren, the young people in our lives are facing um, strong peer contagion, strong emotional pressure, um, and, and this strong emotional pressure is creating gender dysphoria in them. Um, we have to be, we have to understand this, we have to be aware, be aware of it, be ready for it. So, so those are the first like four um, factors and or bullet points on the individual level. I just want to point out, um, and this has already been said, but I just want to say a few more factors. Number five, Google, our, our, and social media. That's number six. 
Google and social media, it's five and six. They, they already mentioned, but so important, the amount of information and pressure that is at our children's fingertips is astounding. It's astounding. It is not surprising when, when a child who is being subjected, when a, a teenager who's being subjected to that amount of information um, and that amount of emotional discourse, emotional pressure online, it is not surprising that a teenager um, would experience dysphoria um, after all of that. It's not, it's not surprising at all. And then also number seven, the sexualization of culture. Most 14-year-old girls now are well acquainted with how a porn star looks and behaves. They are being taught that that's what a woman is. Is it any wonder they don't want that? Is it any wonder they don't feel like that's what they, what, what they are, what they want to be? And the number eight, family breakdown. All of these issues are exp- exponentially increased when children grow up in a single-parent home. So all of this is, is bad news, and we can think of more bad news, and we could pile on. Um, so we've seen the factors that contribute on a general societal level. We've seen the factors that contribute on an individual level. And in and all of this, of course, there's, there's overlap between those two sets of factors for sure. But I want to state again is that we as Christians, we are to rejoice. We are to, we, we, we have the gospel. We have Jesus. We have, we have the word of God, which gives us a, a firm foundation. We have the joy that comes from being saved by Him and the joy that comes from knowing that His way of life is best, that His grace is sufficient to to save anyone out of anything. If He saved us, He can save any kind of person from any kind of sin. So so this lesson today, all I want to do is, is build our awareness, build our understanding so that we can be skillful disciple makers. We, we, what, we, what we've done over the last two lessons is hopefully what we've tried to do is get a really good handle on kind of what the questions are. What the questions are. What, what, where, where the confusion lies. And, and what we want to do next week is we want to look at the, how the Word of God answers all of this gender confusion. It answers it in a in a beautiful way, um, and how and, and how really our only hope is to turn to the authority and the grace of God. So that's what we're going to do next week. Until then, thanks for listening. Thank you.